Hello and welcome to another episode of Tots. I'm your host, Ben Gardner. Today on the show, we have my buddy. I think I've, I've known him more than uh, anybody else in my life other than family for, for a longer period of time, uh, Ian Lazarenko. He's also a researcher and analyst on government accountability. So Ian, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ben. It's actually a really honored to be here. Um, and what you said is true. I think I've known you longer than pretty much anyone outside of my own family. Uh, I think part of that is because you live right down the street from some of my family members. Yeah. So it would have been before kindergarten that we actually first started, uh, you know, that we met and started playing with each other uh, as kids. And that would have been 2002 or three. So that's nuts. oh my gosh. That's crazy. Uh, <laughs> I shouldn't have said that out loud because now I feel very old. But in reality, I still we're, hopefully we're have men. a few. We are very for the for the viewers at home or listeners at home rather. We Ben and I both have very long white beards. Yes, we also both have ADHD, which is why I think this is going to be fun. Yes, yeah. we are like the tangent people. I remember. So when were we in Harper's Ferry? Was that a month and a half ago? Yeah, that was that was mid March, I think. Okay, so I remember when we were there hanging out with our friends. We just like went off on a tangent about. Thomas Jefferson and Monticello and they were just like not into it and we yeah. just talked about that for like 25 minutes and yeah. it was great everyone else was kind of silent just yeah. kind of sitting around uh, yeah. and Ben and I were just going at it talking about history and uh, other stuff that both interest us and related to that topic and uh, everyone listened politely but I don't know how I don't know. <laughs> we were the only ones engaged yeah. I think <laughs> that's definitely true here and um just sitting around the studio and everything too, with the different lights that are bleeping and blooping. Uh, bleeping and blooping. I'm yeah. very, I'm my, I'm very in tune to everything. But I promise <laughs> that for everyone listening, we will have some structured and and uh, productive conversation. That's good. All right. Cool. Well, yeah. So I wanted to have you on for a couple of reasons. Um, one is, you know, we've known each other for like a really long time. And I, I always like talking to people that I've known at different parts of my life on the show because it's like it brings up those memories for me. And then I kind of like fall back a little bit into like who I was at different points. And it's interesting to like think about like how much I've changed. But then also like for the person coming on, I'm like, you're like a different person in some respects than I knew when we like hung out like a lot, like in scouts or in school. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think it's. It's cool. Plus, you're also doing some cool stuff with uh, your job. Mm -hmm. I think it's cool. Mm -hmm. And we were talking about Ukraine as well yeah. Yeah. a couple of weeks ago. So I think those are some good mm -hmm. good things to talk about. But Yeah, there's definitely a lot to talk about with all of those. But, you know, to your point about going back and kind of, um, especially when we talk about memories from scouts, uh, especially with each passing year as it gets further and further away, it's nice to be able to both relive those moments, but also kind of just forget about everything else going on right now and yeah. being able to talk about uh, stupid stuff that we did when we were young, maybe stuff <laughs> that we shouldn't have been doing, but hey, it's Boy Scouts for a reason. So exactly, um, it's all good natured fun. Yeah, 100%. I, I think some of my favorite memories from scouting were from summer camps. And I was talking to somebody about this, like, I think probably like six months ago. And they were like, what, like, what do you want to do? Like after you're retired and like, you have time and money like our generation is supposed to be around for like a long time, like considerably longer than previous generations, you mm -hmm. know, according to like research and stats. So they're like, yeah. what do you, you want to do? Like once you're retired, you have money and time. And I was like, dude, I think I want to get a summer camp 
And I want to be that like weird fat old guy that like lives in like a nice lake house, like further down the lake and then comes in for like the first campfire mm-hmm. of the season. Oh yeah. And then just like walks around randomly and yeah. just disrupts things. And I think you, that's my goal. That, that definitely is a good goal to have sort of the, um, elder statesman kind of vibe but yes mix el- mix of an elder statesman and a, a weird old hermit dude yep that's that's kind of my goal too that yeah grandfatherly figure who you're not really sure what he does at the summer camp <laughs> nor are you really sure if he's even supposed to be there but hey he's there and he's he just there. walking around and nobody nobody minds because they're just good-natured dudes so that would be a good goal to have um there i, I remember a few I can't even say a few years ago now, but when we went to, I think it was Camp Rodney on the Eastern shore and there was Love a Camp Rodney. Yeah. With the bikes and everything, beautiful yep. camp. But there was that one youth leader who was probably about our age now, Gobby. Yeah. Who, who had the knee high socks and he would ride the unicycle <laughs> around camp and he had these big black rimmed glasses and he just looked like a fake person, you know, the kind of person that you would see in a movie or something and you're like they were trying too hard when they wrote that person yeah but this guy existed his name was gobby and he wrote a unicycle for the iron man competition that they had at the camp that week so yeah everyone's riding their bikes for however many miles on that that hilly terrain and then there's gobby in his knee-high socks riding a unicycle i mean looking back i mean that guy was i'm you know, he must have been getting the babes, except it was Boy Scout camp. So I was gonna say there were you, none. But <laughs> do you think that guy's getting laid on the regular? You think he's just he's got that aura of like he's kind of weird, but he's cool. He has to be because okay. I think he's so unique that people know that you know they they won't get another taste like him. <laughs> like there's only one copy. <laughs> <laughs> I said taste like him, and I instantly thought I'm like the rating on this podcast just went from you know, PG to PG 13. Yeah. It, it will absolutely get flagged by yeah. Apple. Yeah. They're dude. They're, they're so annoying. Yeah. With, okay, like well, ratings and st- it's yeah. So tell me, I know you've been doing the podcast for a few years now. Yeah. What's it like now that you have an established studio space and a, a new one that I know that you're working on and, and, and we'll be recording in um, now or shortly. What is this kind of because um, I know what it's like for me working in an office or working virtually mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, the nine to five or nine to whenever is, uh, you know, that's that, that I think a lot of people have that kind of experience. What's it like right. working as a podcast host and how do you apply maybe some of the lessons you've learned from scouts to this kind of deal where you're front and center and, and sort of, a, I mean, you really are your own boss. So it's that yeah. leadership role there, too. Well, first of all, I think you need to get a podcast because that's that's such a good question. <laughs> that's that's a very good question. Um, so, yeah, it's you know, I still work the nine to five um, doing sales in Baltimore and then um, doing consulting, which, you know, is never nine to five. Yeah. It's, it's always other mm-hmm. hours and stuff like that. And then on top of that, the podcast, it's weird in terms of like time management stuff, just because I'm not good at managing time. Yeah. but. I've realized over the past few years, like I can't train myself to be good at it. I just have to throw myself into a situation where that's the only option is to be good at it. Like there's not, there's not another option for me with all the things that I do to be like, Oh, you're disorganized or, Oh, like you missed that thing. Like Mm -hmm. you can't, you can't miss that thing. Yeah. Or like today, like when you were coming, like we had, 
other stuff going on that like I needed to like yeah. fit into different slots. Yeah. Like Mother's Day. And, like make it yeah. work. Yeah. Right. Mother's Day is today, by the way. Happy birthday. I mean, happy Mother's <laughs> Day to all the moms out there. Happy Mother's Day. And if it's your birthday too, happy birthday, mom. Happy birthday. <laughs> if you're a mom and it's your birthday, happy mother's birthday. We're filming this just for you. Also, there's no yeah. film. So No, it's just it's just audio. We're doing great. Um but, but the time management, you know, certainly scouts, I think, help with that, at least for me. Um, yeah. And then once I was on my own in college, I was like, holy moly, I have to actually apply all of those skills to this. Um, and so I think just based on the setup here and everything and you continuing to publish episodes, I think just from my perspective, you've got the time management thing down. What's um, right. what's something that you have learned in this job maybe that you had a preconceived notion about, if you had any at all about podcasting, but what surprised you about doing this? Um, the more you do it, it's super weird. Like what kind of audiences you get. I think my idea of like podcasting came from like all these really big podcasts, like, uh, the Joe Rogan experience and and podcasts like that, where Mm -hmm. I was just like, Oh, like they have people listen. And it's the majority of the people that listen to Joe Rogan are not people that are coming from different places. They're mostly Joe Rogan fans or fans of that podcast. Yeah. But when you're at my level and um, some of my other podcast friends would say the same thing is that like on this smaller level, it's mostly people that like the people that you're having on. Yeah. So I have a decent sized regular listening base of people that like the show or know me. Yeah. And they're like, I enjoy this. So I come back for like people, yeah. which is that's the most valuable audience to build. Yeah. But a lot of my audience is people that know or really like the people that I have on. Yeah. Well, you picked the wrong guest, Ben, because I don't think anybody <laughs> likes me that much. <laughs> well, it's it's so funny because like I'll do and I, I think I've talked about I think I talked about this like four episodes ago, but I'll have people on, um, for example, I won't release who it is, but uh, within the past two seasons, I had somebody on with like the largest following that I've yeah. ever had on in the show's history. Yeah. Um, and and it's not it's not any of the big ones like nobody's going to really recognize them unless they listen frequently. Yeah. But combined total, they have um, like two hundred and fifty thousand followers on Instagram. Yeah. Uh, like a shit ton on LinkedIn, Facebook, like you name the social platform, they have hundreds of thousands of followers. Yeah. And we released it. And this person's like not super well known, like their company's really well known, but them themselves are not. Mm-hmm. And the episode did terribly. Yeah. And then a couple weeks later, I had my friend Chris on who has no social presence. He's yeah. turned off all of his social media, like all that shit. Yeah. And it tripled it got triple the numbers that this other one did. And I did very little promoting. Yeah. But I think it was just because what content you have and how the conversation goes is so much more important than audience, because if somebody really enjoys it or they got something out of it, they're going to send it to their friend. And the most valuable marketing is word of mouth. Oh yeah. So having like better conversations, I think, I think was a huge thing for me to realize is like, look like you can get somebody with a quarter of a million or a million followers on Instagram that's not worth jack shit if it's yeah. not a good conversation, which this episode wasn't. And so yeah. it didn't get shared around. Yeah. The episode with my friend Chris was fantastic. We yeah. shot the shit. Mm-hmm. We had a great conversation about a lot of different things and we laughed. And so people were sending that around and and it just blew up. So I think to answer your question, like one of the big things that I've learned is that your content is so much more important than like 
your exposure in terms of that marketing because if it's a good enough project like that'll come yeah you don't have to worry about that yeah but, I think but that's it's hard definitely true yeah that's definitely true and you know i i'd studied um i know you studied business marketing in college and i did i did uh history but also economics and that's one of the big things and we learned in economics just about value uh and how yeah. consumers express value and there's so much content out there right now that people really are going to focus on the things that they find to be most valuable for them in their time. And quality conversation, I think, is you know a big part of that. A lot of people have podcasts nowadays, but most of them probably shouldn't. And yeah. when you can, you know, when you can find um, a podcast where it's a guest that even may not be well known, like your friend Chris. Hi, Chris, by the way. Um, <laughs> if it's a good and quality conversation that really draws out people's interest. So that's, that makes yeah. a lot of sense. That's, that's cool to hear. It is funny too. Like, um, Carol Baskin comes up a lot just yeah. because like, that's, yeah. that's the most well-known person I've had on in terms of like their popularity. And, uh, I will forever be writing that one episode. Cause I just, I love it so much. Yeah. And, and, and it was a great episode, but like, that's not my best episode. Mm-hmm. And it's it's not the best in listens. It's not the best in conversation. I really enjoyed it, but there's five or six other episodes that I like cherish and like yeah. I've listened to several times. One of the big ones being um, Chet Pajardo, who I went to high school with, uh-huh. who came on. Um, oh, geez, probably three months ago. Mm-hmm. And his episode did really well. Um, but. I like I didn't even really care about the numbers, which was weird because I, I I'm a big numbers guy. I cared more about the conversation. Yeah. And he was in here just like you in the studio and we laughed the entire time. And I re-listened to that episode, which I never do for any of my podcasts. Yeah. Like I listen once done because I was in the conversation. I don't want to mm-hmm. hear it five times. Yeah. I listened to that one episode like three times. Just like in its entirety, because it was so much fun, yeah, and I, and it was such a good, engaging conversation mm-hmm. that I really valued it, and apparently a lot of other people did too, because it it did exceptional. Mm-hmm. So it was it's kind of weird to like have to focus more on like the quality of the people that are coming on in terms of like can we connect on a real level? Because it's now that I'm getting bigger, it's so much easier to just be like this person with a million followers wants to come on. And it's really hard to say no to that person. And I've done that before, but I don't think that it's going to be a good episode. Yeah. And I don't want to release that. Yeah. So it, it's been kind of a weird journey. That's a hard balance, but I think that's a good strategy to take because especially yeah. our generation, you know, we have, we, we all grew up at the internet, you know, we've all been listening to podcasts or watching YouTube videos and stuff for decades. And at this point now, these, you know, older Gen Z, like you and I, you know, or young millennials. I don't really know what the heck I'm supposed to be. Um, We're in-betweeners, I think. Yeah. In be- I honestly, I don't give a shit. You know, I am. <laughs> it's just like whatever. But uh, we all have you know, a lot of familiarity with internet content. And that's why when companies, you know, like like they may create a TikTok account because they're like, we got to get in with the youth market and get a TikTok. Right. But they suck at doing social media stuff. And it's because they just don't really get it. Or they may be, you know, they may bring in celebrities for, for, um, advertising campaigns or whatever you know everyone knows these celebrities but you know if we can tell it's not genuine or you know if it's kind of fake you know a lot of people just you know those will scroll past it and it's that it's that quality that makes it unique and when you have a plethora of information out there you know you got to stand out in some way and 
I don't think it's by getting big names. Like you said, it's by doing something that's different and consistently different in a good way. So hundred percent. Yeah. I actually had somebody, um, that again, I won't reveal this person, but I had a conversation with them and we were talking about upcoming episodes and I was talking about the fact that Chris was coming on and they know him and they were like, he doesn't have a social presence. He mm-hmm. doesn't have, uh, you know, anything that like he's working on to like promote this through or like he doesn't have any big projects coming up. Like, I know like you guys are really close, but why, what to you makes it valuable like to have him on? And at the time I had like just started to think about episodes a little bit differently and not really look at the numbers. And I was like, look, like at the end of the day and like people listening are going to think this is funny, but like at the end of the day, I don't really give a shit if people yeah. enjoy the show, yeah. which sounds terrible. Like obviously it's a, I'd, yeah, it's about I'd rather have people enjoy the show, yeah. but it's so much more valuable to me to have conversations with people that I enjoy talking to yeah. recorded so that like when I'm 80, yeah. I can like play these for my grandkids. Yeah. Like that, that to me is more valuable. And I'll be like, this is like how I was back then. Yeah. This is what I sounded like. Yeah. This was my friend. Like, yeah, how- like grandpa, grandpa, who the fuck was he? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but like, imagine like if your grandparents right now, like yeah. you're talking to your grandparents and they always bring up like their old friends from childhood, right? Or like their friend from college. Yeah. And imagine if you could like take a conversation that they had with a friend from college, like good, bad, indifferent, yeah. offensive, like whatever, yeah, right? Whatever it was, yeah. And you could just, you could hear that like 50 or 60 years later. Yeah, it'd be incredible. It'd be like a totally, you know, it's like reading uh, their old diaries or journals or something yeah. like that if you have that opportunity. Because um, you really get an insight into, especially if they're the same age as you are now. It's right? Hard, it's hard, I think, for us to think about our grandparents or even our parents, frankly, when they were young. Because, right. you know, in your mind, they've always been, you know, older than you in some way. Right. Especially grandparents, too. But that's why I love listening to, to um, you know, the folks tell their stories, especially veterans, like older veterans. Dude, yeah. There's just so much knowledge to learn from. And if, you know, if it was recorded for posterity in a way like this, it'd be so much easier. Just that's the history major in me talking, wishing I could have podcast from world war ii or something like that Dude, can, you can you imagine how crazy that'd be oh fucking crazy hitler on uh you know hit them interviewing hitler or something on npr they're like hello mr hitler how did he be like <laughs> whatever but you know you can listen to his speeches or you can listen to like radio broadcasts from the time newspapers that was always something super interesting for me as a yeah. history major going in and that's really where I, if i was ever writing a paper or like doing research into a time period uh I had a professor who, you know, was really adamant about going through all the newspaper archives and stuff. And it just got me in a habit of that would be the first place I would go because I would I would want to know, like, what was considered to be newsworthy that day or, you know, the day after a major event happened, like Pearl Harbor. You know, obviously, every front page in the country uh, the day after Pearl Harbor had something about Pearl Harbor on it. But I'm like, what else are they talking about at the time that they think is important? What are they yeah. maybe, and what are they, what are they maybe not talking about? Well, there's so much that gets missed, right? Yeah. And I think that's why this is such a cool medium to me is that even in the future, when like you know, podcasts in the future will probably be like 30 seconds long. Yeah. Something like that, like something nuts. But like, I will still have these, and it's so much more in depth than just like what were they reading about, or like yeah. what was what articles are being published by CNN, Fox News, yeah. and MSNBC. Yeah. 
like this is this is so much more in depth and it's less about the news it's like it's more about the people you know individual yeah. people's per uh, you know opinions and perspectives on things which you lose when you're reading news media i think because you're reading you know either a really watered down trying to be neutral kind of version like if you're reading like a, a wire service like reuters or if you're right. reading you know something from fox or msnbc or cnn you're very slanted slanted and, in some yeah. way you know and that's it's not the, the average person exactly that's not how they feel most of those reporters and stuff and that's my little tangent i'm going to do about the media you know they're most of them a lot of them go to you know schools that are you know maybe ivy league or very advanced or expensive schools to do journalism then a lot of them go out and you know some of them do global reporting but oftentimes i feel like um people in the media are very much in a bubble and it's not it's yeah. not just constrained to any side it's just kind of no. the, it's just kind of the side effect of being in that sort of position um and when you're if you're not aware of that fact that you're in a bubble uh, i think you can very quickly get a uh, maybe very slanted or uh, a very very particular view on current events that is very far removed from everybody else's perspective right and so if you're in the future and you're trying to figure out how people felt and you're only going off of like you know yeah media, exactly you have no idea because yeah. you know people could be slanted keep yeah. talking for a second i'm gonna grab you something cool okay yeah well you know kind of on that point um and maybe to segue into some some topics on some more current events or other things that we wish to talk about reading things in the past um books that are published or or uh, people who were able to be historians or able to be you know, uh, authors at that time, almost always, especially the further back in time you go, there are people who were either very wealthy or they were, you know, maybe they were monks or some or in some other religious clergy. Um, but they're not the average person. The average no. person, you know, in the middle, in the, if you go to the medieval era, the average person is some illiterate farmer in France who, <laughs> right. you know, they don't know jack shit about whatever is going on. And if you saw the King of England and the King of England passed this little French hamlet, the guy's going to be like, oh, sacre bleu, what the hell is this? And, you know, he's not going to know what the hell's going on. Um, and so that's always just like, you know, kind of keeping, uh, trying to keep a common perspective on things in the past too is difficult. Yeah. But what's this cool thing that you're showing me here? So I've been getting kind of into um, like old advertising. So like, obviously yeah. I love marketing. Um, and one of the big ones, obviously to look at for like old advertising and marketing is Coke. So I found these in New Hampshire. Wow. These two, these are old Coke ads from, um, yeah, I think magazines or something. And then my girlfriend uh, just bought me this. I think this was for my birthday. This is from 1945. This is talking about Paul Jones whiskey and I love whiskey and old fashions. And she found that. And I just, it's so interesting oh, to nice. go through these and like, look at, I, I think this is a more interesting perspective than the media, because this is the people that are trying to sell to the average people of the time. Cause that's what marketing does. You're, yeah. you're trying to find your niche, but if you're Coke or whiskey, you have a very large adult uh, for whiskey and then everyone for Coke uh, demographic that you're trying to reach to. So to read how they're actually positioning things to mm -hmm. try and attract those people, I think is such a better way to look at like the time and how they felt about things. Yeah. Like when a man's in the mood for a hearty old fashioned, the chances <laughs> are good. He chooses Paul Jones. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is fantastic. And the artwork is so beautiful too. And really speaks to, you know, the time here's a mother, you know, it's Santa Claus eating a chicken leg and drinking a bottle of Coke out of his ice box here. And then the picture of a girl 
and her mother um, taking the bottle out from their refrigerator and their refrigerator is, you know, as about as big as maybe your computer screen. Um, and yet, you know, it's still America's favorite drink. Here. This one is so I, I think this is one of my favorite ones. So this is another Coke one and it has this girl in the yeah, I like guess that's a, German yeah, like dress. Some, some Bavarian outfit there, like right. Oktoberfest. And uh she's serving three Cokes in glass bottles to somebody in like one of those little uh car, you know, trays that hooks onto the side. Yeah. And it reads uh refreshing service for people on the go. Active people find a short stop means a fresh start when it's a pause for an ice cold coca-cola yeah for coke gives you a welcome bit of energy with as few calories as half an average juicy grapefruit and that's real service for you have a coke and go refresh so it's like this is when is this from hold on is this dated that's definitely the 40s this is uh 1954 oh wow okay so it turns out i know nothing about historical <laughs> advertisements <laughs> So if you think about that time period, though, this makes sense, right? Yeah. Like things are starting to pick up in terms of, um, you know, we're at that time, what, 10 years removed from, from the war, yeah. the Second World War. People are are getting more um, energized around things. I think work at this time too start to have more of that like yeah. almost industrial revolution type, like yeah. well, you really have to work yourself too. to the bone. I mean, they're in a car. And after the war, so many of those GIs returning home were able to buy cars for the first time. And it's the first time really yeah. that, you know, every family, uh, there was mom, dad, 2.5 kids and a dog in their white picket fence. <laughs> right. They probably have an apple pie somewhere in that car too. We can get in their Coke to wash it down. But, you know, that's that really speaks to the time where everybody, or at least in the ideal, you know, could have a, a car. You know, they could go into the drive. That's when drive throughs became big, too, like McDonald's yep. and stuff like that. Um, Served by some cute Bavarian. Yeah, some cute chick. Bavarian girl <laughs> coming up. You know, that the that, long ponytail or pigtails. I, 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 I'm fascinated by her because it's just like the was this a typical uniform? She's so out of place. I don't know if that's supposed to be at some like event or. Maybe that came out in October and it was like an Oktoberfest that I have no idea. Yeah. But like, that's why I love it so much is that part of it just doesn't make sense to yeah. me. It's it's almost like it's doing, um, you know, she's in the old dress. There's a lot of Germans or people of German ancestry in the country, but a lot of people who served would have experienced, you know, at least some form of German culture, if not in Bavaria itself uh, during their time in Europe. Um, and especially if they were stationed after the war too. So it may have been, you know, targeted to men who are driving, returned from the war, which was a sizable population at the time. And those were the people who could, you know, go to drive throughs and get three bottles of Coke. Yeah. I'm also, I'm so fascinated by the Santa one. And I specifically wanted to find one with Coke and Santa because I believe, and I don't, I don't have like a Jamie, like on Joe Rogan where they can just fact check stuff on the fly, but oh, yeah. I'm pretty sure that Coke is credited for some of the creation of yeah, yeah. the more modernized Santa Claus, which is what we have here where he's in the red he's, suit. He's fat. He's got the beard, jolly yeah. cheeks. He's in the red suit. Um, and, and it's just, it's so cool to me to be able to have a piece of history like that, yeah. where I'm like, this was probably within a few decades of them starting to create more of this character that literally everywhere now that's like generally accepted as like that's Santa Claus because yeah. before that it was not the same. I think that's correct. Yeah. And here, this is interesting too, that they're advertising a radio show um, on Columbia network, which I believe is CBS Columbia broadcasting yeah. service. 
Uh, and so I guess they had, and they still do, obviously, Coca-Cola still sponsors, you know, entertainment in all forms. I mean, American Idol, that was like Coca-Cola. They had that big ass Coca-Cola room where they were all yep. just sitting on the Coca-Cola couch. And you're like, huh, I'm kind of thirsty. I think I might grab a Pepsi. <laughs> you but, just you get know, shot. They're, <laughs> they're like, you're invited to the song shop at your radio. Listen, you'll be glad you did on Columbia Network, 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Fridays. I'm like, what the fuck it's is nuts. a soup shop? The song shop. And what are they singing about? Santa Claus drinking Coke? I guess so, because that's what it, you know, it here. But Coca-Cola is... They're they're definitely, and I'm, I'm sure you studied them in marketing classes. I mean, they're yeah. they're like, I mean, the only people who did, basically, you know, if, if you view it as propaganda, the only people who could even be compared to Coca Cola are really the Nazis and things like that. So, not saying. Weirdly, any, I knew that we were going to talk yeah. about the Nazis. Well, I, we're definitely going to touch on them later. Yeah, but for any Coca Cola lawyers, I am not comparing Coca Cola to Nazi Germany. Just the just your the propaganda and yeah. advertising. <laughs> They've convinced a lot of people to drink Coke. They um, have. I honestly, I think, I don't know. I don't know what, if I prefer Coke or Pepsi. I don't they're really, both good. They're both good. And if you did a blind test, I think I would drink Pepsi. Yeah. But I also would never be able to tell. So we did that in, um, I think that was in high school. We did a blind taste test, but we had read somewhere that... Um, <laughs> Like at different temperatures, they taste more like another. So it's either if you drink, I think it's if you drink a cold Pepsi and a warm like Coke. warm or like room warm, temperature warm. Coke, they're supposed to taste the same. You're not supposed to be able to tell them apart. Hmm. And we tested that in a classroom, I believe at Calvert Hall. And uh, I think the result was that most people could not tell the difference. Yeah. Which is so funny because I'll still go out to restaurants like this happened last week and and fucking Chris. Yeah, I order. I, I say, hey, like, I'll take a Coke. They're like, oh, we only have Pepsi. I'm like, yeah, like, that's fine. Yeah, and he's like, how could you? I'm like, what do you mean? What do you mean? It's yeah. the same shit. It's the exact same thing. They have like the same varieties too. like they have Sprite and then Mountain Dew or not Mountain Dew, Sierra Mist. Sierra Mist. Sierra yep. Mist. There's um, well, I guess Yellow Mellow and Mountain Dew. Yeah, is so yellow mellow is a Mountain Dew. I've I don't think I've ever drinking yellow mellow. Yes, I think it's a I think it's a Southern thing. I'm okay, pretty sure it's a Southern yeah. thing. Is that Coke? Because I I, I, I yeah, went to see. I went to the Coke Museum last summer in Atlanta. I went to no Atlanta way. for the first time, and it was it was a pretty cool experience. Um, and they at the end there's like a room where they have Coke products from around the world, and you can take samples of them. And that was a really cool. Some of them are. You know, very specific. I think to the to the uh, the market in that country. Right. Um, so I think it probably wouldn't do too well here. But there was uh, one that I think that was fairly similar to just straight up bubble gum. Um, it was pretty sweet. Uh, but it's really interesting to see products yeah. throughout the world. Mellow yellow. Mellow yellow. Look at that. Owned by Coke. Well. And then Mountain Dew. What is probably Pepsi. I think so. And and I and then I think Dr Pepper is actually owned by itself so i don't think dr pepper is owned by either i could mountain dew is pepsi pepsi i thought dr pepper dr pepper was coke i thought let's see let's find out that's the beauty of having the internet now we can oh yeah dr pepper oh dr pepper (laughs) dr pepper snapple group snapple group wow that's crazy you know what's terrifying to look at and i'm sure you know probably just about as much as I do on this or maybe even more Yeah, is like the conglomerates. Oh yeah. And like Coke is a big one. It's oh, yeah. like, 
uh, Pepsi, Time Warner. Then you've got Coke, Disney, like, yeah. and then Vanguard and BlackRock. Oh, yeah. dude, that's know, nightmare yeah. fuel. Talking, yeah, I know. That's that's what always gets me. BlackRock having what, however many trillion in assets, I think, or billions in assets that they do. Same, you know, some of those organizations are just so big. Um, but, you know, then you think about companies 100 years ago, like Standard Oil, that was Rockefeller's company, and how he had an actual complete monopoly on oil. Oh, yeah. Within this country. Drilling, refining, uh, distribution, and then sale. Yeah. Every single aspect of it, even down to the, the waste from it, they used and controlled total, total vertical, vertical integration. And the part that's almost crazier for me is after it was broken up by the government, the companies that can't, I, we're talking Exxon Mobil, um, uh, well, ExxonMobil is even a recent conglomerate. It used to be Mobil and Exxon, two separate companies. Um, what are other, you know, you know, those big oil companies, they're all the largest companies in, in some cases in, in certain yeah. countries, if not, you know, and, and they bring in tens of billions of dollars in profit. And at one point they were all one company. And to think about that, you know, it almost makes a conglomerate like Vanguard or Time Warner seem fairly small. Which is like yeah so weird it's yeah. always funny to me too to see um like different things that they promote so like i love seeing uh like subsidiaries of like coke or some of these uh different like oil companies promoting like like you need to recycle and like you should think about an electric vehicle to reduce your emissions. And yeah, I'm like, like you're the doing? largest company in the world. Yeah. <laughs> like, what do you mean? You get yeah. tax breaks. You're contributing more than like millions of individuals yeah. put together. And you're like lecturing me about like, Hey, like you need, you should probably get an electric vehicle. Like, <laughs> have you thought about really? composting? Yeah. Like, like have uh, you thought about not like poisoning yeah. the earth for yeah. your own gain and then blaming it on Yeah, that? That's one of the issues that like among many, that I have with some of the messaging around like the global warming stuff yeah. is that it gets put on the individual. And some of that makes sense, right? Because yeah. change needs to happen like at that individual level, mm -hmm. but it's usually being like rammed down your throat by, by subsidiaries large of large companies that clearly do not care and yeah. that get around those rules yeah. on a regular basis. Yeah. Companies that, you know, up until recently were, singing a totally different song like companies like, like 10 Ex years yeah like exxon mobile i mean they basically their own scientists in the 1970s you know internally you know said to the the high ups at the company they're like um you know we're kind of getting alarmed by how many greenhouse gases are getting emitted into the atmosphere or you know maybe all the dumping of oil we do into these rivers is you know maybe not and they're like oh yeah well how about we fire you and murder you and your family and <laughs> they're like, like never mind so now everything's these, fine then decades later they're like hey consumers maybe you guys should compost or maybe you all should just you know reuse a little bit more i'm like well that's nice but at the same time uh look who's talking you like, know i'm not really the issue here yeah i had a discussion too uh when i was in college uh i think this was senior year um somebody came to me because they're like hey like you have like weird opinions on stuff because you do <laughs> you do research and i was like yeah so uh, like i don't talk politics much yeah. on the show and i don't um it depends on like the issue but yeah. usually i don't get into personal yeah. like beliefs because i just don't think yeah like it's usually what, not necessary for whatever conversations right you're having, but yeah. also like what are the odds that like 
the majority of people that listen to the show are like, I got a good perspective from that. Yeah. Like we're not wired that way right now for yeah. the most part. I'd like to think my listeners are different. I have no idea. But one thing that I talk about frequently is like environmental stuff because yeah. I've worked in conservation yep. for like nine years. And you know, both in Boy Scouts too, Leave No Trace was a huge part of what we did. Yeah. The outdoors is such a central part to the scouting experience that, you know, even if you're maybe beliefs on how best to preserve and protect the environment differ. Yeah. It still surrounds that same goal of like, right. hey guys, let's not destroy the world we live in, you know, because <laughs> yeah. I kind of like it a little it's bit. It's kind of important that we we take care of the earth. Yeah. Um, but yeah, somebody from the newspaper approached me and they were like, hey, like, you know, we're doing this piece on straws. We already have somebody like on the anti-straw side. Like, do you want to write the the pro straw side? And I was like, Absolutely, because I'd done research on that. Yeah. And I, so like 10 second breakdown, the number that they use in terms of how many straws are thrown away every year was based on the science for project of a nine year old. Yeah. That's a big issue because companies like, like Discovery, uh, like uh, I think Fox did something about it, like CNN, like MSNBC, mm-hmm. um, Nat Geo, all of these different massive companies that are supposed to know better took that one. Uh, science for a project that was reported on by one small yeah. news organization extrapolated that yeah. and they're like this is the number and they use that across the board so mm-hmm. that's the first issue the second thing is that when we actually look at like impacts on wildlife all of it comes down to that one freaking sea turtle that got one stuck in its nose yeah. that is the only I, I scoured the internet that is the only reported yeah. case and you guys at home can look this up of a straw impeding the life functions of a sea creature. Yeah. I, I'm and I'm not saying that that's the only case of it happening. I'm sure it happens elsewhere. Yeah. I'm sure birds eat them and then it gets stuck it's, in there. It's the only documented picture. That's the only documented, documented yeah. instance. And so to me, when they release all this stuff, it's like fear porn. Yeah. It's like, look, straws are killing yeah, it's, animals it's, left and right. It's totally fear porn and it's it's virtue signaling, definitely. Cause Which is such an issue. These companies don't give a crap about straws and then they're like let's let's go to metal all this stuff so then i do more research and i find a couple of companies that actually work to remove waste from the ocean and i look at their reporting on it yeah and so we take more accurate estimates we look at their reporting on impacts and things like that plastic straws i believe the number accounts for 0.00003 percent yeah of all plastic waste in the ocean yeah still a problem Uh, yeah still but when you look at uh, netting from fishing and yeah. it's at 36 mm-hmm. percent that's what i want to talk about more yeah or all this uh, the, like you go to the grocery store and there are so many things that are unnecessarily wrapped in plastic or single-use plastic it's it's just i mean it didn't used to be this way for even us when we were kids no but even for our parents um you know my dad's from the soviet union and they did not have i mean even vending machines there if you well i don't know what the heck the Coke equivalent was in that country until <laughs> Coke came in in the eighties, but um, probably did come in a red can, but for other reasons. Uh, but you, you would bring <laughs> you would bring your glass cup to the vending machine. You'd put your coins in, and then it would disperse it almost like a soft drink dispenser. And then you would like it was expected that you would come back after you had cleaned your cup, and um, because the cups you could either bring your own or they had like glass ones there. So if yeah. you took one from the vending machine, you would be expected to clean it and bring it back. And that's just what people did. And I don't think that that would be, you know, people in this country, I don't know if they would be on board with that. But how much better would it be, though, if we all started because plastic bottles is a huge one. 
what if we all started carrying around our own like reusable bottles and the vending machines instead of yeah like yeah, you I have right there right here. Yeah. i've got my my single use aluminum yeah i know uh, i have a, a single use <laughs> aluminum this this nalgene was a lot of this comes from boy scouts you know just having yeah. you know it's a bit of self-reliance because i can carry more water in this thing it's it's definitely you know it's it's very sturdy and you know if need be i can use it to smash someone's face and because it's, it's very know, useful very, very useful so we like the uses. multi-uses exactly and i've taken this everywhere with me i like it i have some stickers on it so it's kind of a personality item too people know that i like stickers and that i like staying hydrated so they know i mean business when i walk you're not virtue signaling when you walk around with that no i'm just thirsty you're 100 <laughs> <laughs> i'm just thirsty <laughs> um but the, i, I yeah. want to talk about i want to talk about russia and ukraine yeah because i i think we both care about that pretty deeply yeah and I think we both have done a decent amount of research. I'm sure you've done a lot more than I have. But, um, you know, we when we were talking about that in Harper's Ferry, I think that was when I was like, yeah, like we should talk about this on yeah. the show. And I'm still working on getting a Ukrainian on the show. Yeah. Missed my opportunity two weeks ago with uh, Volodymyr Mula, who just released Yuke, yeah. um, which is about <laughs> Ukrainian hockey players. Very happy to go to that premiere. Uh, if you guys want to check that out, look up... Uh, I think it's uke documentary or ukemovie.com, but definitely check that out. Um, but this is like, this is a huge thing that's like happening, like right yeah. on the heels of a uh, global pandemic. We yeah. have like a superpower involved in a war with not another superpower, but like an established, modernized country. Yeah. A sovereign like, nation, you know? This is a huge invaded. deal. Yeah. And, um, so, so maybe some background for, for listeners and the reason why I know and am so interested and passionate about this topic. My, I, th- I said before that my father's from the Soviet Union. Um, he was born in Moscow, but our family are ethnic Ukrainians. So my grandfather, my dedushka, he was Ukrainian. He grew up in a Ukrainian village still in the south of Russia because uh, populations were moved around so much by the government. His, uh, his, his grandfather... I'm sorry, his father was moved there after the First World War um, to a village right outside of Stalingrad. And the village was mostly Ukrainians. Uh, My last name is Lazarenko, which is a Ukrainian name. And during the war and afterwards, he experienced so much both persecution and discrimination for being Ukrainian. Um, When he was in the military, he he moved around Eastern Europe in 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 Russia, and he ended up in Moscow. Uh, he married uh, my babushka, my grandmother, who was uh, part Russian and part, I believe, Finnish. Um, her biological father, I believe, was from Finland. But it all gets, once you go further, it's very hard to keep track of all the <laughs> movements of people. But, you know, my my family coming from that place and my dad emigrating when he was actually now younger than I am, I believe he was 22 or 23. Wow. Um, I've always been really interested in this, that region of the world. Um, but also learning about its history because it helps me understand a little bit more about where I come from and and what my family has experienced. And with everything right now in Ukraine, um, one of the reasons why this particularly is so horrible for not only, of course, you know, me and my family, my father, um, and 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 is understandably devastated. He in no way supports Putin. There's a reason he's in this country and not over there. Yeah. Um, it was it was almost a shock, I believe, for most Russians and Ukrainians as well, because 
it is important to remember though that the you know the war has been going on for eight years now. Russia first mm-hmm. invaded in 2014, and so people have uh, been fighting and, and dying for for almost a decade now. And in Ukraine, uh, especially in the eastern parts of the country where fighting is very hard right now, they're familiar with, if not have firsthand experience with warfare. But for such a large scale military invasion, um, you know, it, it wasn't something that people thought was in the past, especially after the bloodshed of the Second World War. Really, that that term never again, never forget, seemed for mostly to hold true. There has obviously been conflict throughout the world. Um, you'd be blind or purposely ignorant if you haven't been paying attention to things. It was just last summer where the United States pulled out of Afghanistan and we all saw first or not firsthand or at least through the media what the effects of that were. And you and mm-hmm. I grew up really only knowing the post 9-11 world where U.S. troops were in Iraq or in Afghanistan. There, yeah. Exactly. So, you know, we are familiar with there being conflict throughout the world. Um, but a large-scale military invasion in Europe had been really unheard of since 1941, 1939. Yeah. And in Ukraine, so many people having had experienced the horrors of the Second World War, um, either the, the, the large Jewish population that existed in Ukraine prior to the war, or Ukrainians themselves who were targeted for extermination by the Nazis, but many people, my my grandmother, my babushka, experienced the war too. She fled Moscow with her mother. These are memories that are real for people who are still alive. And I don't believe people thought that people would be crazy enough again to repeat those horrors. And today May is May 8th. And May 8th is actually the anniversary of when Nazi Germany surrendered to the Allied forces. Wow. In They did that, I believe, in... Uh, I believe it was in Berlin mm-hmm. where they surrendered and it was later in the day. So Russia was already a day ahead. It was already May 9th. That's why May 9th or 9th Maya and Russia is victory day. Uh, and that is the day that they do all their big parades and everything. And in the Soviet Union, that was the day as well. You think they'll be celebrating this year? Oh yeah. They've already got their big parades. They've been practicing and everything. Um, this year, of course, I think will be, much different than years prior. Putin is going to be giving a big speech where he's expected to double down on everything. And um, it's all part really of this false narrative he's trying to construct of this being a war or a special military operation, like he's calling it. They have the Russian media and, and Putin have not called this a war. They deny that it's a war. Special operation. A special military operation. Well, also for, they claim to be attacking... Nazis. Ukraine for Nazis. Yeah, they're they're which denazifying. Is, that's what they say. Which is for anybody who knows anything on? about Ukraine, it's just it doesn't make any sense. Um I've also seen some images that likely doctored, but uh Ukrainian flags with swastikas on them. Uh yeah. Zelensky with a with a swastika. Oh yeah, yeah. Zelensky so Zelensky himself, uh he's Jewish. So that kind of breaks the narrative about <laughs> it's like him being an anti-Semite because I'm like, well, unless he hates himself, which I clearly don't think he does. Probably not. Um, that argument does not really hold strong. And the, the denazifying is, 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 you know, it's hilarious to me, but it's also hurtful because it uses the memory of people who fought, people like my, my Dalushka who fought in the war and what they were fighting against, which was 
really, it, it was a racial war. That's what Germany called it. They called it uh, Rachel Krieg, whatever. I don't speak German. That's what they called it, though. And their, yeah. their intention was to uh, exterminate the Jewish populations in Eastern Europe and eradicate the Slavic populations in Poland, Ukraine, Belarus, Russia, yep. enough to where Germans could come in and use it as Lebensraum, living space. They wanted the farmland and they wanted um, Slavic people to be their slaves. The word slave in English comes from Slav and that's what German, or that's really what Hitler rather wanted. And so for, for Russia now to be claiming that they're denazifying an area that suffered so much under Nazi occupation is ridiculous. And it's a falsehood of, they're falsifying history by saying that one, Ukraine is now filled with Nazis. Ukraine, like any other Eastern European nation, is, is, um, has, has suffered a lot of poverty since the collapse of the Soviet Union. They suffered a lot more poverty even during the Soviet Union. And there's a lot of problems that appear to be endemic within uh, Ukrainian, you know, the corruption is one, that's a huge problem in Ukraine. Oh, yeah. uh, another is, um, you know, there are a lot of extremists, both, you know, far left people who want the return of the Soviet Union. They're all seen, they're a very small minority and they do not even have a really a loud vocal uh, voice. But there are people who are, um, you know, they, they lie on the far right. They're very deeply nationalistic in most cases, but they do adhere in some weird way to, uh, you know, Nazi ideologies about some certain certain things about either being, you know, a lot of them are white supremacists, which Ukraine mm -hmm. has, uh, you know, only 0.01% of Ukraine's population is, is not white. So I don't really know what exactly they're against there. <laughs> Um, but, it's but these, it's very interesting to have white supremacists in a place that's almost entirely white, and like I could, and that's why they're so fringe. But that's uh, why they're. They, that's I mean, interesting. You talk to any Ukrainian, and you know they they they're like these people are nuts. You know, just like in this country, they they would be. It'd be like someone saying, "Oh, everybody in the U.S. is a member of the KKK, so we must invade and eradicate." If Canada said that. We'd be like, what the hell are you talking about, Canadians? <laughs> like, you know, that doesn't make any sense. We'd be like, uh, clearly, nobody here is you know in favor of these idiot fringe racists and that's how ukrainians feel too and so for putin to use this as any sort of justification is just hilariously false but to him and using this memory of the the second world war where the soviet union lost over 27 million people died during the war um which it, i feel like is is overshadowed sometimes because it's I, yeah. it's like it's not that's that's 27 million is an insane number it's an insane number to think about but when you also break it down by within the soviet union a large plurality of those came from the other soviet republics not from russia so from ukraine from right. belarus which lost i believe almost a fourth of its population if not more to the nazis and, and then all the subsequent famines that occurred during the war and then coming back and saying exactly we're it, fighting nazism in this place that exactly. lost a significant portion of the population it, to nazis it just does not make sense from a, when you are viewing a real historical narrative it does not but unfortunately in russia forever now for for decades they've been pushing false images and false narratives about what the second world war was you really would not find anybody in russia who's a historian who would say that you know Oh, they would all agree that the Soviet Union, Stalin, they were the great victors. But what they neglect to mention is that many of those successful battles that the Soviet army fought, they were riding west towards Berlin on American jeeps because of the Lend-Lease program. They were using American yeah. weapons. And, at you know, anybody who lived through the war knows how important all of 
each of the Allied powers were. It was a collective mm-hmm. effort to defeat Nazi Germany. Oh, yeah. If we had even not had one of those... It would have all fallen apart. It, it would not have worked. Yeah. No, it was very collective, and, and the teamwork aspect was the most yeah. important part about how that worked. But even right after the war ended, Stalin denied, really, that the Holocaust was separate from what had occurred to the rest of the Soviet population, because his his false logic was that they weren't targeted because they were Jewish. They were targeted because they were Soviet citizens who just happened to be Jewish. But Which clear, he's using to justify uh, the, attacks against exactly. the Soviet Union Ex- and saying like, oh, like, see, they're coming after us because of our prosperity. And- yeah. But they're also, he's also saying that because he himself was targeting Jewish people, especially in the late 1940s really? and early 50s. And um, there, you know, he, he eradicated many of the doctors in the city of Moscow, almost all of whom were Jewish. He started imprisoning um, people who and actually executed, murdered, I believe, I I forget what it was called, but the Soviet Jewish Council, most of the leadership there who were trying to document the crimes of the Holocaust that had occurred uh, within the Soviet Union, but most infamously within Ukraine itself in in Kiev. Baban Yar is a a ravine uh, outside of the city of, of Kiev where over the course of the time of the Nazi occupation, hundreds of thousands of people were shot and, and buried there in mass graves. And just at the beginning, in late February of this Russian invasion, they actually bombed Babin Yar. They bombed this site that where people still, their remains are there in the ground uh, on, on the top of this hill in, in, in Kiev. And it just shows the disregard that Russia has for the past, but how willing they are to use lies about their own history to justify their crimes. It's very Hitler-esque. It's extremely And, and we talked Hitler-esque. about this in, in Harper's Ferry too, but it's like uh, a lot of the language uh, and, and language is really a very important aspect of how they're justifying things. Yeah. A lot of the language is uh, obviously nationalistic. If you're going to take over another country that used to be part of your country and, and your union, you have to say, you know, like, exactly. oh, these are our brothers. But just like you're saying, the, the hypocritical part comes in where it's like, you know, Putin will tell you that he wants a collective, um, you know, force together, a, a collected Russia, and he calls them his his brothers yeah. and sisters in Ukraine. But they're really yeah. they're really Russians, and they're part of they used yeah. to be part of the Soviet Union. But then they're shooting civilians in yeah. the streets. And Ukraine, and especially in the east, the borders during the Soviet Union were closed, but they were still very fluid, and and they were even before twenty fourteen. Um, there are a lot of people who, who live in the east of Ukraine who grew up speaking Russian yeah. and Ukrainian and who would even in some cases identify as ethnic Russians, but still reside within Ukraine. And it's hard for people, I think, especially in this country, to really understand the dynamics of ethnicity within Eastern Europe, because even cities like Lvov or Lviv, rather, in uh, the west of Ukraine before the Second World War, that was a part of Poland. And so... Ukraine as a nation is relatively new in terms of being a sovereign state. Right. But the idea of Ukraine as a nation of people, that is a much older idea that, um, for, you know, first was written down along with other nationalities during the period in the rise of nationalism in the 1800s. But the history of Ukraine and of the Ukrainian people, and however they may have called themselves at the time, goes back hundreds of years before Moscow was even established as a city. There are buildings in Kiev that are older than Russia as a country. Wow. And I did not know that. When you look at the history, when Lenin, right the day before the invasion, he's he's saying, oh, Ukraine, Ukraine was created by Lenin 
after the revolution to give Ukrainians a nation to be part of the Soviet Union. And I'm like, well, that's not true because there was a sovereign Ukrainian state established before the Bolsheviks took over. Um, after the collapse of the Russian Empire, which had kept Ukraine as a part of it for hundreds of years, Ukraine had a sovereign nation. They, they, were, they were given independence and they were free. And, you know, during the Russian Civil War, the Bolsheviks eventually uh, took over. And, you know, slowly, at first they gave, you know, they were encouraging the idea of Ukrainian nationalism within a context of a Soviet Union. They were like, being Ukrainian is great. Being Ukrainian is, is amazing. Here's all your poets. Here's all your, you know, your histories and everything. But you're all still communist, or at least we're going to be eventually when we get to that point. Um, and then after Lenin died, Stalin reversed most of those policies. And this, this, this policy of promoting nationalism had happened in every of the Soviet republics, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Ukraine. Um, and Stalin realized that that was probably for him he perceived it as dangerous because now you have talks of Ukrainian secession and independence. Exactly. And Ukrainians, especially they were, they were, they realized, you know, we've been in existence for longer than Russia. Um, the, the history is very much shared in some ways and, you know, and nobody would deny that, but they realized that they had just as much as a right to sovereignty as any other group of people, any other nation, yeah. the French, the English, even the Russians. And Stalin destroyed that independence movement. It was in the 1932 to 1933, the Holodomor, the, the famine genocide, as it's known in Ukraine. In 1932, there was a massive famine across the Soviet Union due to the policies of collectivization of agriculture, mm -hmm. where Stalin was... Uh, you know, destroying private farms, arresting people who had previously uh, you know, earned money or profits off of farming. And he was collective, uh, you know, collectivizing these farms into state run, um, you know, essentially really kind of plantations. Um, and Ukrainians who had, I mean, Ukraine is known as the breadbasket of Europe. Ukrainians have been farmers for, for, for generations and centuries. They were like, fuck no, you know, this is my farm. I'm not going to you know, lose my property and move into some collective barrack and then collectively farm only for you to take all of our wheat back to right. Moscow to distribute as you see fit. And uh, collectivization is one of the factors that led to this massive famine across the Soviet Union. And it's important that it was across the Soviet Union. Russia lost millions of people over this famine. Kazakhstan lost about a fourth of its entire population to famine during this time. Jeez. But in Ukraine, in the countryside, you have people who are starving Meanwhile, all the grain is still being collected and sent out of Ukraine, rather into Ukraine, and a lot of it is actually They're being used. It's exported for foreign money so that they can buy things like heavy machinery for for industrialization. And then in the cities in Ukraine, cities like Kiev or, or uh, Kharkiv, which borders close to Russia, over three hundred thousand members of the intellectual elite or Ukrainian politicians, historians, poets, even musicians who played traditional Ukrainian instruments were arrested and in most cases never returned to Ukraine because they were either deported to Siberia or they were shot. And so in Ukraine, the period of 1932 to 1933 is, is a very harsh memory. And you put that into context of losing upwards of it, the lower estimates are about three to four million on the low end. On the high end, you have as much as eight to 10 million. No one will ever know the true number. Because the Soviet census in 1940 or 1935 
was actually repressed because it showed such a large decrease in Ukraine's population. Stalin had wow. Stalin had it hidden and everything, and the, you know the people who worked on it were eventually shot. Um, and during the Second World War in nineteen thirty, I'm sorry, nineteen forty one, after Operation Barbarossa, you have the Nazi army, the Wehrmacht, and all of them entering to, into Ukraine. And there are pictures, a lot, of most of which are also, by the way, Nazi propaganda of Ukrainians, you know, welcoming in these German soldiers with flowers and. You know, in some cases that did happen, but 10 years, less than 10 years before, they had seen millions of their countrymen starved to death in a man-made famine. And so, right. so what's the perspective you have there? You're like, yeah. Stalin's murdering us and shooting our families. These people are maybe going to help us not be under this rule anymore. And immediately, of course, they realized that was not the case because Ukrainians in, in, in many ways suffered such a horrible horrible uh such an unbelievably terrible experience under nazi occupation literal yeah. genocide that the even the notion that ukraine today is filled to the brim with nazis is just frankly offensive to anybody who even recognizes history it's so bad and i think like we see these comparisons all the time that people just kind of casually make like uh i think one of the big ones was a lot of people talking about trump and they'd say yeah. he's literally hitler and yeah. i'm like look like He's not a good person. That's that's my opinion. I don't find him to be a good person. Most people, I don't think, find him to be a good person. Yeah, it's okay to say that. It's okay yeah. to say a lot of different things. Yeah, and and I believe in free speech and yeah. and the First Amendment. I think you should be able to say whatever yeah. you want. And I'm not trying to stop people from saying that. But when you take somebody that you really don't like, yeah, that that maybe does bad things, and you equate them to someone who murdered. Uh, you know, Tens general of millions es of people. Yes. Yeah. That is really, really bad. Yeah. And that's it's, really it's wrong. A, it's it just makes you look like an idiot, frankly. Like, it it belittles, I think, the Jewish uh experience yeah, it, yeah. and and what they've had to go through, especially considering that there uh are still Holocaust survivors or people from that time yeah, period alive. And and there are some of them that live in the United States. So when you say things like that, like that's that's really bad. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not you cannot equate those two things like a, a bad politician who makes bad decisions and someone who legitimately killed millions yeah. of people. Those are not even in the same. No, you can say like like we're talking about Putin, although obviously Putin's killed a lot more people than Donald Trump. Yeah. You can say. But even still, he's doing Hitler like things. But we're not saying that he's literally. No, he's Hitler. And it, you, with each passing day, though, the actions of the Russian army in particular um, but it, also the statements that Putin makes and the, the the blatant falsehoods that he promotes. Yes. And even just last week, uh, Sergei Lavrov is his, his foreign minister. That guy's been his foreign minister for, for a while now, I believe at least 15 years. He said that, um, you know, Zelensky is an anti-Semite and it doesn't matter that he's Jewish because Jewish people did a lot of bad things in the Holocaust. That's what he said. And Israel actually, Israel called the Russian ambassador to, to to demanded that he come to the prime minister's office and they demanded a, a, an official apology from Russia and Russia's response was to double down and say actually no Jews did cause a lot of problems during the Holocaust for themselves and basically said that Jews caused the Holocaust that Ukraine is filled with neo-nazis and many Jewish people were Nazis themselves and Israel was trying to maintain a, not neutrality during this conflict but trying to you know maintain 
at least acceptable relations with Russia because Russia is such a big power player in Syria, right north of Israel. Yeah. And many Israelis are from Russia or from the former Soviet Union as right. well. Um, it got to the point where Putin himself actually called the, the Israeli prime minister to apologize for those statements because they realized that they had said, and this is truthfully, I think, what they all believe, but they realized that they would be uh, doing severe diplomatic damage to themselves, but also to a lot of uh, the Jewish community throughout the world who have ties to Russia uh, or who right. live within Russia themselves. Um, Putin is, uh, I don't think Putin believes that particularly, but he has a lot of, um, and it, it's ironic that they're calling Ukraine Nazis, but there's such a huge uh, number of neo-Nazi groups in Russia yeah. That uh, you know, Russia actually had to think has the largest population or like the largest cluster of neo-Nazi organizations in 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 Eastern Europe, if not in Europe as a whole. Or, I mean, I would venture to guess the world. Probably, we talk about neo-Nazis in the United States, like they're on every corner, yeah. and there's a population here for sure. But yeah, it's like but it's, it's when you look at similar, yeah, in and, Europe, it's like, are and it, you and serious? It's, it's it's also so there. It's it's much. It's much more militant. More, it's much more militant. I mean, here you have, it's like you have these a, yeah fucking from losers, losers who are in prison gangs and stuff like that, or that live in their parents' basement yeah, and they had know. a bad interaction with a black person. Yeah, and they're forever just yeah. Or they're, like, they're just uh, trying to be edgy. Something in this country, you know, because right. you don't. But in in countries like Russia, they have actual historical ties to Nazi organizations and stuff, and um. It's just bewildering that Russia, and this is a constant playbook by them and has been since the Soviet times, if they blame you for something, it, it most likely means they themselves are doing it. Historically, that holds up not just for Russia, but a lot of, with, yeah. with a lot of powerful groups mm -hmm. is like, hey, what's the best thing that we could possibly use? Well, a couple people called us this. Okay, we're going to call everybody else this yeah. while they're doing the same thing behind backs. Yeah. I think the other interesting thing is fascism as it relates to Putin's grip on yeah. Russia is that, you know, a, a huge component of uh, Nazism is, you know, the fascist part about it. And there's one correct opinion and, and the ultra nationalism when in reality, a lot of what he preaches about is yeah. line for line. Yeah. What Hitler would preach about with the Nazis is yeah. that, that not only the imperialism or that we're owed that land, or the nationalism, but also yeah. like the silencing of any opinion that differs. Yeah, and to, to a ridiculous degree. And it wasn't not never as bad there as it is now. I mean, right after the invasion and in the days leading up to it, you had thousands of tens of thousands of Russians who fled the country because they knew and were worried that uh, the, the big the big concern was that martial law was going to be declared and right. the borders were going to be closed. But what the things that did happen that you know, up to that point had not happened yet. He closed all independent media publications, all the news stations or newspapers that were publishing independently. They've all been closed for the most part. And all the TV stations have at least. So now every station on TV is state owned and it's all propaganda. Of course. Um, the newspapers too, it, the lack of real information in Russia is astounding. In the Soviet Union, it, it was like that as well, but people were able to get information in, but they've now done so much just revisionism with history that you know you see polls about you know russia's russians supporting this this invasion or the annexation of crimea in 2014 you see upwards of 70 to 80 percent of people who apparently support it and obviously all of those polls are inflated and it's very difficult to get real views from russians 
because they're afraid to answer truthfully most of the time. Right. But the reality is that most Russians are, and, and I, I hate to generalize this, so I, I won't, but th there has been, and people have studied this immensely, this apathy, this general apathy towards politics or, or, or world goings-ons because Russians are not, uh, you know, the, the, for 75, 80 years, there was no democracy in Russia. They had no, uh, they had no way to, you know, change or control what was going on in their politics. Right. So why would they why have would they, a vested yeah. interest if exactly. they can't do anything? Exactly. And many Russians still hold that view. And, you know, it's, it's very it's, isolationist. It's, it's very true. You know, they, they're very much focused on just getting through their day. And that is because they need to survive. Yeah. That's their main priority. But now you have people who are really, it seems, buying into this narrative that Ukraine is Russia. Ukraine has always been part of Russia, uh, whether in the Russian Empire, whether in the days of Kiev and Rus, uh, back in the medieval kingdom period, um, which, by the way, named after the city of Kiev. So where was it founded? I don't know, but not Moscow. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and during the Soviet Union, too, Ukraine being a, a Soviet socialist republic, uh, the Russians do, I think, by and large, believe that Ukraine it deserves to be part of Russia. That Ukrainians deserve, if not if 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 not they are Russian, they deserve or should be under the control or the guide guiding mentorship of of Russians. So, do you think there's a positive aspect, even with everything going on in Russia, from the average Russian that feels like this is still better than what they have now, and so it would be better if they joined back? You no, know, I I don't. You know, the only people, That's a tough one. the only people in Ukraine anyway, who believe the Soviet Union was good are really old pensioners, old people who have, you know, rose tinted nostalgic views of the past. Right. And in Russia, it's usually the same. Putin himself has said, you know, anybody who, anybody who uh, wants the Soviet Union re to return is an idiot, but anybody who misses, uh, anybody who doesn't miss the Soviet Union has no soul or has no heart because, you know, that was the time where Russia was a world superpower, they were seen as number one or two compared to the United States. And really, you know, when that the, the collapse happened in 1991, Russia lost a lot of its stature. They lost a lot of its economic yeah. power because, uh, you know, most of the agricultural stronghold was in Ukraine. And they a lot had, of world respect. Exactly. But it also removed the facade of what Russia and the Soviet Union were. My mom when she met my father, she was studying abroad in the Soviet Union. This was 1989. And she told me that when she first landed in Moscow, um, they they walked around and everything. And she just, she was looking around and she just could not believe. She was thinking, is this really our great enemy? Or is this the enemy that we've been taught to be so afraid of? Because everybody here is so poor. I mean, they don't have washing machines. They don't have dryers. They're lucky if they have, you know, a freezer in their house. Um they, they just lack things that we would take as such basic necessities in any household. And this is supposed to be a modernized, exactly. developed country. And it's really not. Their economy is smaller than that of Texas, I believe. And, and I don't wow. even think they're in the top 20 economies in the world. The only thing driving them economically are oil and gas. And if you take that away, Russia really does not have the strength or power that it once did, with the exception of nuclear weapons. And, I mean, even their military... As we've been seeing as in we've Ukraine... Been seeing, military analysts had been so convinced, you know, of, of the Russian military's power, they everybody thought that Kiev would fall within a week. And 
you know, even I, I, I was so shocked at everything that was occurring. You know, I, I, I truly did not know what the heck to believe. I didn't know, you know, nobody really knew what was going on. No. And it became clear so quickly, one, that if anybody, in, if Putin or anybody in his circle thought Ukrainians would just keel over and welcome in Russians with flowers, uh, you know, that, that was just such a lie. The, the bravery of Ukrainians, uh, the bravery, bravery of Ukrainians has been really beyond words to me. I, I have just been every day you see new reports coming in of 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 battles or 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 um of of civilians who are you know rebuilding their towns or standing strong yeah. you know living in occupied Russian cities and protesting against them and the bravery of the Ukrainian people I don't think can ever be forgotten um no. the bravery of President Zelensky and his resolve, his strength staying in Kiev, refusing to leave the capital. It, it, Putin could never do anything like that, and he knows it. No, because he's he's a coward. He's and a coward. He's weak, he's which a is and he's, he's he's a complete. That's the worrying part, though. Yeah, it is, is that worrying. cowards choose the coward's yeah. way out, and, and he if he's knows, trying to make a mark, he knows that he only has a grip on power because of his image of strength. That's why he, there's all those photo shoots of him shirtless riding horses <laughs> and everything. And it's which we used to look at, and we were like, we're, "Oh my God, Russia's so funny!" And now yeah. we're like, "This, this is a giant, you know, and it's, propaganda machine." It's totally ridiculous. And here you have, you know, Volodymyr Zelensky, who played a, on a t television show, a teacher who yep. by chance becomes president of Ukraine. He, when he was first elected, I was doing an internship working um, through the State Department virtually with a number of Ukrainian students who were, you know, very smart, uh, really excelled at, at their studies, uh, spoke English, and were hoping to be able to study in the United States. And so I and another intern, we uh, we worked with them. We did a lot of cultural exchange. We did a lot of reviewing of essays. We did a lot of just good discussion and uh, helped them kind of understand, you know, how to apply for college, what, an, uh, you know, the average sort of American collegiate experience would be like. But mm -hmm. You know, I learned a great deal from them as well about being Ukrainian and especially the generation that never knew the Soviet Union. And that generation, millennials and Gen Z in Ukraine, right? they, you know, they never knew what it was like to live under that Russian yoke. They never yeah. knew anything other than sovereignty and independence. And because of that, they very heavily view themselves as European Mm -hmm. They very much wish to be a European country. They very much wish to live in a in a country that does not have corruption, that does not have statues of Lenin in every town square, that, right. that has people who don't, they don't want to be obsessed with the past like Russians are. Russians are so backward thinking. And this has been, and I hate to say this because, you know, my father is, you know, he's Russian. He's ethnic Ukrainian, but he's from Russia. He grew up and lived there. And, you know, he hated it because he, because his father was Ukrainian. Because he had, you know, he would go to Ukraine every summer. He knew that there were people who did not think totally in the past about everything. He knew that there was more out there. And that's why he left. And Russians who, and you have Russians who live all over Europe. They know this mm -hmm. too. But they still, for some reason, there is this mentality of, and it's because of, it's because it's pushed by the government, this obsession with this this war narrative, this, uh, and I can't even say victim mentality because of the sheer number of people who died. It really is, a, I think, a 
nationwide, almost generational trauma that was never addressed because immediately after the war, you have soldiers who were captured, who were immediately arrested and treated as traitors. You had entire villages that were Jewish completely wiped off the map where your own government, the own government, they denied that there was any, you know, particular, uh, you know, conspiracy or, or attack against Jewish populations. They wrote it off as just, as, you know, as Soviet civilians being attacked. And even in the cases of where Soviet civilians were attacked, oftentimes it was because Stalin himself had refused to allow them to evacuate. My Delushka, he fought, at, you know, in the defense of the, the Stalingrad region. He was 11 years old. And the reason why is wow. because... His family wasn't allowed to leave. Had to fight. Exactly. They were not allowed Jeez. to leave. And in many cases, civilian evacuations weren't allowed up until October or November of 1941, by which the time German armies had already gone into Russia. They had completely overrun Belarus. Late. They had completely yeah. overrun Ukraine. And you have hundreds of thousands of Soviet prisoners of war being sent, you know, not to prisoner of war camps like American or French or British soldiers, but they were sent to places like Auschwitz. That's where Soviet prisoners of war were sent. Jeez. And you have people returning back who have experienced just un, untold amounts of trauma. And they come to a country where, you know, that is never addressed. They pass that down. And over time, as the government continues to feed people lies about what had occurred during the war, many uh, many civilians at my, my grandfather's village was both Ukrainian, but also Volga German, people who were ethnically German, whose families had come to Russia in the 1700s, during the time of Catherine the Great, wow. they were Lutheran. Many of them had, you know, many of them spoke German. They all had German names. And every single one of them was taken by the KGB to Siberia and never returned during the war. Jeez. Half of my grandfather's village, orphans, children were taken, shot in the street, sent to Siberia. So we look at all of that history. And it was never addressed. And no, you have people... it's never addressed. And then now we have more of the propaganda. Yeah. That... Mm -hmm that's ultra nationalistic yeah. and just yeah and, and we need to keep going they deny crimes last year the the first one of the the, the largest human rights organizations in, in russia was created right at the end of the soviet union is that an oxymoron i know right you think so it, well it is now because they don't exist the name of it was memorial and they, they all they did that's was a little ironic as well, well well all they did was document the memory of Stalin's crimes. So they did interviews, they, they gathered documents, and, St uh, and Stalin, Putin rather, said, you know, you are anti-Russian. You're against the memory of, of, of the great victory that we had. And that's why they have these Victory Day parades where they, you know, they show their military strength and it has nothing to do with the remembrance of the people who died. And if it was, because all the other countries in Europe still, they, they still hold the memory of those who gave their lives in the Second World War near and dear. It's insane to me, too, that they're in such an environment that is so anti, like, still individualism and things like that, that they're not, they, they can't even work on current human rights. It's called memorial because they're working on yeah. identifying people that were already lost because they can't really focus yeah. on the future. And, you know, you have all the journalists, um, so many who were, you know, disappeared over the 2000s and 2010s. Oh, yeah. Um. Uh, the, poisonings the poisonings and the assassinations. assassinations. You have people like Boris Nemtsov, who was uh, the liberal opposition leader who was assassinated in front of the Kremlin in, I believe, 2015. And then who was taken out in a... Somebody was just taken out in an embassy within the past two years. Um, yeah, actually, oh, yeah, I, I, I 
Oh man, I I've, I don't know nearly enough as I yeah, should. Yeah, but about but that. a good example is Alexei Navalny, who is currently sitting in prison right now in Russia, who was poisoned. Um, I, he was poisoned, uh, and then remember he brought to Germany for treatment, and then he willingly, voluntarily decided he was going to go back to Russia, and immediately he was arrested and charged with some some false, you know, terrorism or traitorous charge and sentenced to prison indefinitely for however many years, and he's faced torture. You know, his his wife and his family are under threat, but his party was banned and uh, people came out to protest, in, uh, you know, against Putin and in support of Navalny. Um, and a lot of people were protesting in, I, I think, 2021 and 2020 about uh, pension reform, too. That was a big topic in Russia, pension reform. And, yeah. uh, you know, Putin has seen that there have been threats to his rule. And that's why in many ways he's gone even further sort of paranoid over the past few years he knows well, he knows that he's his time is coming up he knows that yeah and it's that's oh, what just that's what gets so scary in many ways um he wants to leave his mark on history he knows that his time is almost up and he wants and to remain back to in do power corner he knows what happens to russian leaders if they lose power you know they're done if if they're lucky they get deported to some summer house somewhere and then are lived under close watch that's best case worst case is you're immediately shot along with your family and dragged out through the streets or dumped in a coal mine somewhere like they did with the Royal family. He, uh, in 2011 during the Arab spring when mm -hmm. Muammar Gaddafi was killed. Yeah. That video of Gaddafi being killed, um, which I don't know if you've watched, but you know, yeah, it's brutal. It's absolutely brutal. He's hiding the lion of Libya. The lion of Africa is hiding in a in a sewage drain with his own gun after his guards have abandoned him. And he's beaten to death by people who formerly were so afraid and never would have even approached the man. And Putin, according to reports, watched that video over and over and over again because he, he knew Gaddafi personally, their little dictator club that they had. And he knew that this is something that could happen to me. Flash forward four years, three years, 2014, Ukraine has their revolution, their Maidan revolution, Shit. and they overthrow the pro-Russian president who had been installed, who, when he was running against another guy just about a decade earlier, the other guy somehow suffered a poison attack and almost died and was paralyzed in the face for the rest of his life. <sighs> this guy, uh, Yukashenko, when he was overthrown, um, he flew to, he fled to Russia, um, and they, you know, they, they're going through his house afterwards. And he, had li he lived in this huge mansion this with a zoo and a pirate ship and all this other they stuff. They all have zoos. It's all, I, where the fuck do you find all these animals, you know? They, like, I would love a cool, like, like mini zoo in my future mansion. But, like, yeah. dude, you don't need lions and a giraffe. Exactly. And the lions, the lions and the giraffe are not going to protect you from a nationwide revolution against you. And so Putin no. has, been, has been just doing everything to remain in power and consolidate and keep that keep his sense of self-security and Ukraine and their resistance is destroying that for him. He never expected to have to fight this hard. He expected to win immediately. Well, think about it, right? He was ultra paranoid, but not to the extent that he even saw something like this coming. So it confirms yeah. on, on the yeah. front end, his paranoia, but then on yeah. the back end, it tells him, Oh, I wasn't paranoid enough, which only makes things worse. Yeah, and you have to wonder what kind of information he's being fed to, because people are, oh yeah, you know, they, the people are certainly afraid to tell him the truth. And we know from history that the same was going on with Stalin and his advisors. 
We saw how that worked out. Yeah, I know. We saw how that worked out. And with with Putin, you know, you have to wonder. And and, and it's, 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 I know there are a lot of analysts and people who have experience with, you know, uh, in Russia or with the Russian military or just Russian organizations in general. They were, they were kind of not, they weren't surprised at all by how poorly the Russian military performed because you have, let's say, $10 billion going in military investment. You have your top generals each, you know, stealing a few million of that or right. a few billion of that. And by the time it gets down and you're getting down in the details, these guys have, I mean, they have no supplies. No. They have no training. They have you no know knowledge why too? of where they're Because going. when they allocate spending, it's all strategic. We need... Yeah. We need three new jets. We need 50 new tanks. And then they do that. And then that's what you see in the parades. Yeah. And then when they go into Ukraine, they're using all Soviet era yeah. bullshit. Yeah. Because that's not the stuff that No, it's not the they stuff show that they off. want to show off. And no. it's, it's, it's um, you know, my, my father served in the Soviet Air Force for two years in Siberia. And he served with people from all over the Soviet Union, including Ukrainians. But the common denominator there was that everything was just total bullshit. And they, oh, yeah. they never had enough supplies. Their, their, the officer corps was completely corrupt and inept, and nobody was doing anything in leadership except for stealing. It's it just what it was, and you know, exaggerating numbers in in the in the industrial context. You know, exaggerating production figures, exaggerating how many pounds of coal we got out today. How many potatoes were harvested? Ex- no, it, it, it's exactly true because you're when everything is based off of doing more and doing better getting more grain, getting more potatoes. Why would you not lie? You you have an incentive to lie because the the downside is, you know, it's not that, oh, I don't get a bonus at the end of the year if I don't meet my quota. No, it's that you get shot. And so... And it's not like somebody's going around double-checking these numbers super tightly because they know everybody else is lying. Yeah, they're lying too. They're stealing stuff too. And that's why, you know, it's, it's, it's so particularly horrible to see yeah. what not only Russia is doing and I say Russia not Putin because it is Russia that it's all, it's not just Putin but it's all of his generals no, it's Russian forces it's all of his generals it's the entire officer corps it's all of the propagandists on their TV stations some of the people saying, included and and yeah a lot of people a lot of people in Russia buy into this propaganda and I feel terrible for them I I truly do I know my father feels even worse because he knows firsthand what it's like to live in a country to know that your country is based on a bunch of bullshit and see how how many people have fallen for it. Because well, you're the, tied to the idea of yeah. it couldn't possibly be here. It's over there. Yeah. Somebody else's country's bullshit. How could my country be yeah. bullshit? And Russians know that Putin's a dictator. They don't believe yeah. he's they don't think that they have a democratic society. They're not interested in it because they never have had one and they don't believe that people truthfully can you know, play any kind of part in the decision-making process like that. That's why when you have, you know, at the beginning of the war, there were thousands, tens of thousands of people arrested all over Russia in protests. But compare that to the global protests that we saw in 2020 or the protests in Ukraine in 2014 and 2013 during their revolution. Mm Mm-hmm. They all, all the, all the, all the protests in Russia dissipated within a week or so. And meanwhile, in Ukraine, in these occupied cities, you have people literally pushing tanks backwards with their bodies, stopping Russian convoys and protesting, waving Ukrainian flags. You have 
the Russians coming out saying, everyone curfew, go inside. And they're just responding by saying, fuck you, you know? Right, or shooting at them. <laughs> or, and they, 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 it's, it just goes to show how much control the Russian government has over the, 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 the flow of information and what people believe. But right. it also shows how when you have generations who have lived in a free and sovereign country, who are able to freely yep. think and decide things for and themselves vote. and vote and participate, they understand that one, they can make a difference by voicing, you know, their opinion, but two, they know how much they have to lose because yeah. it's harder, I think, for maybe younger Ukrainians, but older Ukrainians, they remember life under the Soviet Union. And now they're used to living yeah. with and, relative freedom and they do not want to go back no and in these cities uh, you know I, I i mentioned those ukrainian students um i i still keep in contact with some of them and i consider some of them to be friends and they're telling me uh you know the, the one of them the, their family lives under occupation right now in in in, in a russian occupied city and uh, we have pictures and uh, pictures from all over in eastern ukraine that are now occupied of russians putting up statues of lenin again in town squares where those statues had been removed. So some of the people that still remember those times are watching it literally like, be rebuilt exactly. before their eyes. Soviet flags are flying right now <sighs> in preparation for Victory Day tomorrow. And the question That's is, so is victory over what? You know, how many people gave their lives to defeat How Nazism? many quote-unquote Russians are being killed by Putin They're, and his forces? Yeah. And that's the, yeah, that's, the th like, that's exactly uh, the truth. You have, you have people in eastern Ukraine who 10 years ago would have identified as, I'm an ethnic Russian, I'm a Ukrainian national, right. I, I grew up speaking Russian, I go to Russia all the time, I may even work in Russia, I may be married to someone who's from Russia, I don't hate Russia. That's what they would have thought. And in places like Crimea, it's even more so that kind of a population. But now, people are, I mean, if you go in and bomb a city, kill civilians, rape all their women, and then expect them to all of a sudden be subservient to your yeah, military. Yeah, welcome you with open arms. Yeah, like, it doesn't matter uh, what they, what language they grew up speaking in the household. They're not going to like you. And no. because Ukrainians all over the country have been fighting back so hard and so successfully in some cases, they completely yeah. pushed Russian troops away from Kiev. The counteroffensive there and the defense of the city was unbelievably uh, both, one, strong, but two, effective. They I mean, we thought Kiev was going to fall within like eight hours. Yeah, people assumed that was the estimate. It was like eight hours to like a day. And you know what? It it the, the Ukrainian people would have resisted no matter what, but the Russian army was so almost. It's almost funny how poorly they performed. Oh yeah, they, they I was brain. watching videos of. Uh, Ukrainians in vans driving by and seeing the Russians and just rolling down the window and being like, are you lost? And they're like, yeah, we don't know where we're going. Yeah. And it's all these green soldiers. That's the other thing that, uh, and I want to wrap this up in a second, but that's the other thing that like is not only like super disheartening to me, but that's terrifying. And then also kind of comforting at the same time, very weird emotions around it is that a lot of these Russian soldiers are very green. Yeah, they don't know what's going on. They're, they're, a lot of them yeah. thought they were going on training missions. Yeah, so think, half yeah, of me yeah. is like, it yeah. makes me feel a little bit better because they're less, like, it's less of a strong force than we thought was going to be going into Ukraine. Yeah. But then I feel like shit because I'm like, these are 
like young, mainly Russian men who are being sent to very dangerous areas. Yeah. And, and Ukraine can't take prisoners anymore. They announced that, I think, two weeks ago that like, look, like we can't take artillery groups prisoner anymore. We understand that they're they are confused. A lot of them don't know what's going on. But like for our own safety, we can't do that anymore. Yeah. To, to, to take like mass, mass sur- surrenders <sighs> of people. Yeah. And it's just it, insane. You know, it speaks it, these 18 year old conscripts who were lied to given they're not given enough fuel, not given enough food and told to just drive south and don't ask questions or we'll, we'll shoot you. And all of a sudden they're in another country and fighting a war. And um, it, it, it's, it's heartbreaking both to think about the suffering Putin is inflicting upon Ukraine, but also upon his own people. And it's devastating. It's, it's devastatingly disheartening for me to think about how even still it does not seem to matter for, for so many people in Russia. And it's I can't so weird to watch some of these interviews. And, well, we, you know, you and I will never be able to understand what it was like or what it's like to grow up in a country where you truly do not even have any conception of, a, you know, voicing your political no. opinions because what's the point? What's the purpose? There yeah. is none. And um, it's a different world is really what I can say. And I hope that, you know, I hope that this war comes to an end uh i hope that it results in, a, in, in a, the only the only option is a, is a total victory for ukraine there's there can be no you know compromise with people no. who are not willing to compromise and no. um at this point you know it it has putin has done more to unify ukraine than any other thing could have over the past 25 oh, yeah. years of their independence almost 30 years on the other side of this, they will come out stronger. Exactly. But the toll is immense. Immense and and unnecessary. This war is, is no. unnecessary. There is no reason for this invasion. The no. justifications that have been given are all false. It's bullshit. Complete bullshit. And yeah. I, I pray that Russians will wake up and understand that they are much more populous than one man. There are way many more Russians than there are they can make a difference and they can. Yeah. And I know that uh, we've talked about this topic and we're getting ready to end, but I'll, I'll just end with that. Um, you know, I'm very aware of the fact that, you know, I'm not an expert on this. I'm by no means am I, you know, I don't speak Ukrainian. I, my Russian is horse crap. So I barely <laughs> speak that. And, you know, I, I, I think about the people who I know who are living there in Ukraine right now, the people who, you know, I have family cousins who still live in Russia. Um, and I, I, I'm aware of how fortunate I am to be here talking about it. And yeah, if anything, the thing that affected me most um, right in the days after the invasion, uh, seeing both how upset my family, my babushka who lives with us, my aunt and my father, but my father, his, his one response really that he kept saying to me, he kept looking at me and he, he was more serious than he's ever been about it when he said it. And he said it to me since I was, ever I can remember, he said, be thankful you live in this country. And he's told me that since I was young, but now I, I, even more so than I have ever in the past, I understand how truth, truthful that statement is. And I really am grateful for the privileges that we have here, the peace that we take for granted every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, you know, the strength that we have, um, as a country that most people probably do not understand. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is a this is a terrible war. 
This is it's impacting people across the world. Ukraine is one of the largest grain exporters in the world, and the effects of Putin's decision, one man's choice, are are going to be monumental in in a very unfortunate way for decades to come. For decades to come, and yeah. the only thing I I can do is is continue to to hope for the success of Ukraine and her fighters, and you know, continue to stand in awe and respect for, for their sacrifices that they are making every day. Absolutely. And, um, you know, with that, I, you know, that's really what I that have been thinking about. It has been very yeah. humbling for me I'm sure. to, to see uh, them fight for something that I take for granted every day, which is freedom and liberty to live as I choose. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Ian, uh, a bit of a dark note that we got know, off yeah. on there, but you know, uh, but it's, it's, but it's such an important and, and honest conversation. So I really appreciate having you on what, uh, where can people find you if you want them to follow you or. Yeah, I'm, I'm on Instagram. If you want to follow me, um, it's at Ian Lazarenko. Good luck spelling that. Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll link that in the show notes yeah. so you guys can find them. There's, there's two people by that name on Instagram. One's, uh, I believe an eight year old Russian boy, uh, and oh, one good. is me. So follow me. <laughs> Don't follow <laughs> follow the really tall one. Follow the tall one, not the eight-year-old. Yeah. Awesome. And then as you guys probably know, if you want to listen to more episodes of the podcast, you can go to totspodcast.com. We are also on social media. Big ones right now are Instagram and TikTok. That's at Totscast. And then if you want to listen to episodes of the show through another platform, our big three are Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. You can just look us up uh, at Tots Podcast and we should pop up. Yeah, thank you guys for listening, and we'll see you next time.